So this is, uh, you're all going to get used to this. This is the moment where I do retractions from the previous week if necessary. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have to do a retraction, just a clarification. It's always funny, uh, as soon as you leave, walk away from up here, you think of like a hundred things you should have said, but God, God always chooses what you say, so we, we, that is good. But I just want to clarify that uh, last week's sermon on deacons, I, I think I made it clear that it wasn't a referendum on my predecessor, since my predecessor was also me. I've been an elder here for five years. Um, but I also didn't want in any way, shape, or form to disparage or throw a negative light on the deacons we have. Uh, the deacons we have are doing a phenomenal job. I, I think that's very clear. It, it's never been a problem with what they are, are not doing. It, it's, it's a problem of how they're being led. So that was what last week's sermon was all about. Uh, leading the deacons in a different direction starts here at the pulpit, and that, that's what I was doing. So just in case anybody was uh, unclear about that, uh, that was what last week was about. So that aside, um, we're going to begin a series now on Mark. And before we get into Mark, I thought that it was uh, important to stop and consider what the word gospel meant. If we're going to be talking about the gospel according to Mark, uh, it's important to know what he means by the word. And so that's what this week is about. What What is uh, the gospel? And since uh, you don't have bulletins, thank you, Becky, for making those. Sorry, I didn't get those printed. Technical difficulties. If you had one, you would know that the title of the sermon is actually The Gospel in the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels, there's four books called the Gospels, and, and, and what they are about is this message, the Gospel, and that's what we're going to look at today. So the text is Mark 1.1, 1, 1, uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to, there's other words I'm going to deal with later. Right now, I'm just dealing with this one word, Gospel. So let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for um, coming into this world and rescuing us from Satan, sin, and death. Uh, we thank you for being the strong man who could save us. Uh, the strong man who is saving us, and the strong man who will always save us. We need that salvation again this morning. We need it every day. And we know, Father God, that in, in your word uh, is strength, in your word is a mirror for us to see how much we need you. And we know that your word is um, full of the joy and the goodness and the faithfulness of your loving Son, who does indeed come to us every day anew and rescues us anew every day. We pray as we open your word that you would give us understanding, that you would comfort us in exactly the way that we need, that you would convict us in exactly the way that we need, and that in all these things you would be honored and glorified. And amen. So what is the gospel? The gospel is actually, uh, much like last week with the word deacon, just simply defining the word, right? The, the, the gospel is good news, Okay. Uh, that's helpful, but that isn't really quite everything we can say about it. Uh, the word gospel, like deacon, isn't just merely about defining the word. It's very difficult to distill it down to its essence. There's, um, there's a lot of things that could be said about it at the end of the Gospel of John, according to John. Uh, he says if he wrote down everything that Jesus had done, the world couldn't hold the books. Uh, so if you're going to then think you're going to summarize that in a statement, is very difficult. It's very difficult to do. Um, and there's, there's different directions you can come at it. There's a lot of good gospel demonstrations, um, summations. Uh, several weeks ago, month, months ago, Dean did one on wrath. And if, and if I, I think many of you who were here recall that sermon, uh, the, the supreme wrath of God. That was an excellent way of looking at what the gospel is through this doctrine of wrath. And, and if you haven't heard it, you should go back and listen to it. 
But how do you take all the gospel? How do you understand what it is? And then once you understand what it is, how do you summarize it into a forceful, hopeful, prayerful, encouraging statement? How do you do that? Before the word gospel referred to a book of the Bible, it was a Greek word that referred to a message of good tidings issued from the lips of an appointed messenger. There were lots of gospels before the apostles wrote theirs down. It was a very common uh, um, word that was used in, the, in Greek culture. And what it had to do with was the imperial cult. Whenever an emperor was born, whenever an emperor came into uh, his inheritance as the emperor, whenever he had a major victory, they would send out an evangel who would proclaim a gospel. The good tidings, the good tidings of an emperor. In Mark 1.1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here, I think most of us think that Mark is referring to the document that he's writing, right? It's, <laughs> it's like he's writing the beginning of this book. It's interesting that the beginning of the gospel, we're going to look at this in another sermon later. He says the beginning of the gospel, and then he quotes Isaiah. <laughs> so the beginning of Jesus Christ's gospel apparently begins in Isaiah. That There's a lot to go there, uh, to look at there. We're going to look at that later. But that word referred to something before the four evangelists' books were designated with it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote accounts of the gospel. One gospel. I think sometimes this is a little confusing. We say the gospel of Mark, the gospel of John, the gospel of Matthew. And, and, and I think what happens sometimes is there are different gospels. They appear to be different gospels in our minds. Um, there are people who are paid way too much money to discuss, you know, the differences between the gospels and how Paul's gospel is different and John's gospel is different. And there must be this other gospel called Q somewhere that everyone was take, uh, stealing notes off of. Um, and, and all of that is utter confusion and nonsense. There is one gospel, and four apostles sat down and wrote accounts of the one gospel. And, and as I said at the beginning, it is so dynamic uh, that it requires four different men to sit down and write accounts for us to even begin to understand what they're talking about. You need all four gospels. Uh, Peter and Paul did not both write a letter to Romans, <laughs> Right? When it comes to the epistles, they're explaining what the gospel means. The gospel is the only book, one of the, the only book in the New Testament where they write the same story in four different ways. And, and that is a very important thing to remember. So what were they writing accounts of? Okay? They're writing accounts of the gospel. What is the gospel? The distinction that I want to make is that the Christian gospel was originally a message delivered by an appointed messenger and the four books that begin the New Testament are handwritten accounts of that messenger and his message. The Gospels, plural, are a literary genre. A Gospel is a message of good tidings proclaimed by an anointed messenger. Now, this is where we're getting closer and closer to a definition. The original anointed messenger of the Christian Gospel was Jesus himself. He was the first one to preach the Gospel. And his Gospel was that he, Jesus, the Son of God, is king, not just of heaven, but of earth. That is what the Christian gospel is, that Jesus has come to earth, and since he is the king, his kingdom has come with him. The gospel is that Jesus is king. Everyone say that with me now. The gospel is that Jesus is king. Now, I thought that the gospel was that you were saved. Well, there's a number of problems there. Uh, first off, the gospel is not about you. 
there's a great deal of benefits for you in the gospel, but, but it's, it's amazing. It reveals a lot about modern Christians where we think the good news that God has to tell everyone is that Michael Kloss is saved. Yay. <laughs> and, and God turned the tide of darkness, right? <laughs> By saving little old me. No, that, that's not the good news. Okay. <laughs> it's not the good news. The Christian gospel is that Jesus Christ is king, and he was the first one to preach that message. This is an earth-altering, worldview-altering, cosmic message of joy. It's what the apostles were proclaiming in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Notice, right? The gospel is not that they're saved. What they're proclaiming is not themselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is a complicated verse. I hope I never have to preach on that one. <laughs> has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Those living in darkness and the shadow of death have seen a great light, and that light is the King, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the first messenger of this good news, and he was, in fact, the message itself. So before we continue, let's review this word gospel that we know so well. Like I said last week, the words in the New, that the New Testament authors chose to use had a context in the original Hellenistic culture that they were writing. Understanding how the words were used before and outside of the New Testament does, in fact, help us a great deal in our understanding of their use in the New Testament. It was a strategic move to incorporate this specific word into the Christian message. I'm gonna, it was a cheeky thing to do. It, it was a controversial thing to do, to take this word that refers to the emperor and apply it to a, to a one-time Jewish carpenter who was murdered. Okay, not only, this is why later uh, Peter says it's foolishness, right? It's foolishness to the world. Like, How, why, what are you talking about? It's it, it's very bold statement that they're making. The word gospel or evangel among the Romans meant joyful tidings and was associated with the cult of the emperor, whose ascent to, to the throne or great military victory was accompanied by a gospel proclamation. Proclamation. I'm not going to read it. There's inscriptions from the ninth century that they've they've uncovered, and and it uh, goes on to talk about the Augustus, um, the emperor, as if he's the god. God has come, and it's good news, and it's life for the world is essentially what it says. But it's really long. They did not; they were not pithy writers, those fellows. But that's how, right? He's come. Augustus has come, and light has come, and life has come, and it mean and it's news for the whole world. That is what Romans how they would use this word gospel. Jesus' proclamation of the coming of his kingdom in this world is the Christian gospel. Mark is writing one account of this word-shattering news, world-shattering news. The Roman world would have understood Jesus and then Mark's use of this word as both controversial and weird. As uh, biblical and historical scholar N.T. Wright sums up the evidence, in the Greek world, a gospel is a regular technical term referring to the announcement of a great victory or to the birth or ascent of an emperor. The point here is that a gospel refers to a public announcement of glorious news about an emperor. The gospel is not primarily about salvation. It's okay that I repeat myself. Okay, of course, of course, God saves his people. When has he not saved his people? The, the startling thing about God is how 
he saves his people. Okay? At the edge of the Red Sea, they were not, in the end, shocked that he saved them. It was how he saved them. If you ask the people in the old, right, Abraham is taking his son up. He knows he has to sacrifice him. And he says this, we will be right back. He knows he has to slay his son, but he knows they're going to come back. He doesn't know what God is going to do. But the assumption that Abraham is making is, of course, he's going to save us. There's nothing new about that kind of news. He always saves his people. He always saves his people. So I don't want to diminish your salvation, but your personal salvation is not the earth-shattering news that everyone was waiting for, that the earth so desperately needs. The gospel is not about you and your salvation. It's about Jesus as Christ. The hope of the Old Testament was that God would come and install David's son upon the throne of Israel. The Jewish expectations tended to be worldly and political in a way that God never intended. But the kingdom of God played a major role in the earthly preaching, both of Jesus, whose message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message characterized the content of the apostolic preaching, and I've got 15 verses in Acts where that's what they were preaching. The kingdom of God has come. Why? Because the king has come. In the, in the Bible, the idea of a good news is found originally in the book of Isaiah. It, it, there is a section there between chapters 40 and 52, which they call the good news songs. Uh, it's a bunch of songs where, about how Israel is going to be delivered from exile, but it didn't take them very long to figure out that there was something greater than just merely return from exile promised. Those songs are about the good news that God himself was going to come into the world and save them again. And, there, and, and that's what every, how is he going to do it? When is he going to do it? That's what all that anticipation that you find in the Gospels is all about. The good news is about Israel's God himself, the God they knew as Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and J- Jacob, the creator of the world, entering into the story of humankind. Not just sending a messenger, but coming himself. That is the good news that Isaiah is promising. Isaiah's good news is that the one true God is on the move. Isaiah's message is about the end of Israel's exile, but ultimately is about the messianic kingdom, which include prophecies about the end of the dark powers that enslave and corrupt and destroy genuine human life. If you, if you go into Isaiah, there is a lot of talk about the overthrow of darkness. And it's no surprise then that at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that what they're talking about is light dawning, the darkness being driven out. It's what they were waiting for. And what the New Testament writers were doing was applying all of that well-known Jewish anticipation to Jesus Christ himself. And the reason they were doing it is because Jesus did it. He says, I'm the light of the world. He, he's, and what he's talking about are these songs in Isaiah that are promising a, the light of God coming into the world to cast out darkness. This good news isn't about a mere human emperor. It's about the return of the true king, the God of all creation. So what are we saying? What am I saying here? Jesus applies this message to himself, all of these songs in Isaiah, all of the Old Testament, in fact, using terms that in his hearers' minds will resonate with language they associate with Caesar. If we can get our minds around that idea, we will be well on our way to understanding what is meant by the gospel. It's very interesting providentially, that Isaiah is talking about good news, and the Romans just so happen to have a Greek word that means good news. I I love that kind of thing. God sets it up to where two different languages, two different cultures, there's this way where they mesh, 
And he can enter into the story using the ideas of the Jews and the language of the Greeks, talking about himself and what it means for the world. And it resonates with all the Jews, and it resonates with all the Hellenists, and everybody now is stirred up by what he's saying. He says good news, and it cuts two directions. And, and, and this is why understanding the Gospels, the four books, there's no end to, under, to the things that you can understand in them. I mean, how, how, does he align, how does he align it up where Jesus says one thing, and it cuts all the Jews, and it cuts all the Greeks? It just, it's amazing. It truly is amazing. Jesus was claiming to do things through which the world would be healed, transformed, rescued, and renewed. He was, in short, announcing good news for Israel and the whole world. I'm going to go uh, to a section that I talked about last week, Luke chapter 4. If you want to take a jaunt over there with me. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, an anointed messenger with a message of good news. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The king has come. The king has come. And, and what comes with him? His kingdom and everything that that means for all of the people of God. Matthew 4.23 sums, uh, sums up the work, the ministry of word and deed that Jesus um, fulfilled. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The true and living God, who is life himself, has come into the world. How do we know? Because he's giving life to people who die. He's healing things that people cannot heal. He's proclaiming good news to the captives. He is freeing not just the Jewish people from the scribes and from the Romans. He's freeing all people. And, and that's what he's talking. He goes around doing the things that he said he's going to do. Mark 1, 14 through 15, if you want to go back there, this is another example of the preaching of Jesus. He was the first gospel preacher. If you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, This is what it says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What's the gospel? That the kingdom of God has come. The gospel is that the kingdom of God has come. Now, what? then he gets into how you're supposed to react to that. Repent and believe, he says. It, it's a matter of words and it's a matter of works. The gospel is not about you. It's not a personal message to you. It's a message for the world. Believe and you enter the kingdom in which salvation, restoration, and eternal life are found. But let's be clear. The gospel is the kingdom of God. The gospel is that the kingdom of God is here because Jesus is here. 
Believe it and repent and enter into his kingdom. The gospel is Jesus is king. Bow, praise him, obey him, declare him. That, uh, this is the great exodus of all mankind. Deliverance from the kingdom of darkness and entrance into the kingdom of light. The original exodus many centuries before had been what we would call a political revolution. In the old stories, it had involved Moses leading tens of thousands of slaves to escape into freedom. God led Israel through the Red Sea personally, through years of wandering in the desert, until they finally inherited their promised land. The exodus remained central to Jewish life and thought. It shaped how Jews understood all of God's promises. God would not remain in heaven, but would come himself in power, defeating the powers of evil and rescuing his people. Isaiah promises the coming of the kingdom of God. In other words, Isaiah is speaking of God becoming the king of the world in a whole new way to, to, to lead the people, all people in the whole world, in a new exodus. That's what those verses that read, we read in Luke are about. He's coming to, lead, to, to let the captives free. He's coming to lead them into the promised land. He's coming to do it himself. And it's not just for, that. this is the mystery that Paul talked about. It's not just for Jews, it's for the whole world. This is a, a, a message for the whole world. Part of the problem about getting us out of the ghetto is we think that the gospel is a message about me. And, and, and that's how we live. It's him and it's me and it's in what he, his kingdom has come into my little house and my little house is the kingdom of God and I serve him there. But it's, that is not what the gospel is. When you lose the international, the world-shattering news of the gospel, you lose the mission of the gospel. The one true God was always the rightful ruler of the world, but he needed to reclaim his kingdom after the power of evil had usurped it. When man fell from Eden, the throne of the true king, God withdrew and cast man out. And what did he put in its pla- man's place? An angel. To work it and keep it. But the fallen angels have taken over the world. Satan owns the world and all her nations by the time Jesus is born. At Jesus' birth, where is Yahweh's kingdom? When Jesus comes into the world, there are no kingdoms in the whole world that serve the living God. Which is why, (laughs) this is why Satan, when he takes him out of the desert, offers him the kingdoms. Remember, Jesus doesn't say, what are you talking about, you idiot? Right? Where do you get off offering me something that's not yours? If they weren't Satan's kingdoms, that's what he would say. But no, Jesus says, no, that's not how I'm going to get these kingdoms. I'm going to have them, but I'm going to have them by being an obedient son. I'm not going to take them by force, which is how the world would do it. I'm going to come and I'm going to lay my life down and I'm going to serve and I'm going to take these kingdoms from you. Though they were Satan's kingdoms. Jesus came to actually rescue us and deliver us from an evil and wicked despot. Jesus said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And Jesus plunders the earth, adding to the treasures of heaven, because he has come into the world to commit a political coup d'etat. He throws down Satan, the strong man, who has enslaved the whole world under sin and death. And by destroying the kingdom of darkness, Jesus ushers us all into the kingdom of light. Jesus came preaching the gospel in word and deed. And the gospel is that Jesus is the king, the Lord, and this is joyous news for the whole world. 
Divine lordship is the key theme of the Bible over and over again. We are told that God performs his mighty deeds so that people shall know that I am the Lord. This is stated 31 times throughout the Old Testament. God acts so that people know who he is. Now, why? Why does he do this? Exodus 9.16 is quoted in Romans 9.17, and this is what it says. That my name may be, may be declared in all the earth, says the Lord. He doesn't just want a kingdom. He wants all the kingdoms. He does what God does his mighty deeds, okay, so that everyone knows that he is the Lord, so that everyone would recognize him as the Lord. This is why the Great Commission is all, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me, right? I've come and I've plundered. I've taken it over. Now th- go, therefore, and declare my name in all the nations. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, as read for us today, it's exactly the same thing. He comes as a servant. He lays his life down. He does his mighty deeds so that the people around him will know that he is the Lord. And he's done this to send them out in the world because it's news for the whole world. It's about the whole world. Every man, every woman, every child, every kingdom, every language, every culture, every continent, Every molecule of water, Jesus comes and he shows through mighty deeds who he is to teach us that he is the only one to be praised. He's the only one to be worshipped. Israel had been waiting for a new exodus, a remaking of the world as a demonstration of power that would destroy the nations. A new David, not to restore just the kingdom of Israel, but to conquer the whole world. In Luke 19.11, it says the disciples thought that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately because they were approaching Jerusalem. They thought, oh, we're with the king. We're going to Jerusalem. That means the kingdom is coming now. And aren't we on the right side of history, they thought. And this is what I find fascinating about this. Jesus, I would have been even more confused than the apostles. Because if your whole thing is military conquest, if your whole thing is military conquest, Armies and supply lines and all of those things. Think about this. If Jesus can feed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish, if he can raise dead people, if he can heal people with a word, well, if he can heal people with mud that he makes out of his own spit, if he can calm the stormy weather, travel huge distances by merely walking across the top of oceans, unlike most armies which have to walk around them or pay a lot of money to get boats, could you imagine the war that he could rage on the Romans? Right? If the setup is political conquest of the Romans and Jesus comes, I would be more than a little excited. Like, the guy doesn't even need a sword. The guy can fight in all weather. The guy can march and never get tired. The guy can cross whatever he wants. And if his army dies, he'll raise it and fight again the next day when everyone's tired. <laughs> this is what the Jewish people were waiting for. This is why some of them were so excited by watching the work of Jesus. They did not understand what he was there to do. They did not understand the nature of his kingdom. The Jewish people of the first century were expecting their God to come back in person to rescue them, to get them out of there, revealing his glorious presence, defeating their enemies, and reestablishing them as his people once and for all as the kings of the world. And yet they got Jesus. He doesn't march against anybody. He doesn't knock down a single fortress. They were hoping for a new exodus, that is, in in an exact repeat performance of what had happened 1,500 years earlier when the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt 
and their God came to rescue them. He had overcome the powerful Egyptian gods, even, not just the rulers. That's what all of the plagues are about. Every one of those plagues is about a particular Egyptian god that he's mocking. And think, all those Roman gods, right? He's going to start doing things to mock them, isn't he? But he never does. This is what they're waiting for. They're waiting for Jesus to mock the gods of the Romans just the way that God did in the Exodus. And what they get is Jesus, who comes and tells them they don't know God. He knocks their gods down, not the Romans' gods. They were hoping for a new age of justice and peace. Ancient scriptures had spoken of a time when the wolf would lie down with the lamb, the mountains would drip sweet wine, and the earth would be full of the knowledge and the glory of the one true God, like waters filling the seas. And yet they got Jesus, who never makes it out of Judea. Right? I mean, he goes to Nazareth, but whatever. Who cares about that area? I mean, the guy never once goes to Rome. He never once goes to India or China at that point. Remember when John and his brother came and asked Jesus boldly that they could sit on his right hand and his left hand in his kingdom? See, they're, they're of my mind. I'm like, I don't, I'm going to just stay close to him. Can I carry your flag or something? Because that's about all the work we're going to need to do. I want to be where you are, Jesus. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. But Jesus gave a crisp answer to James and to John. The rulers of the world run things one way, but we're going to run things an entirely new way. Ordinary rulers do it through ordinary power. They give themselves airs, and they get their way by threats and by bullying. We're going to do it, Jesus said, by loving and serving. This is how it had to be, he went on, because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark ten forty-five. And Jesus was quoting Isaiah from the heart of the good news passages. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to lord it over anyone. He didn't come to take the kingdoms of the world the way the world would take them. God's kingship is a different sort of kingship altogether. There is a different kind of power, and it is the power of the gospel. The power announced by the gospel, the power wielded by the gospel, God came from heaven as a man and overcame evil with good. He laid down his life. He obeyed his father unto death. It is the power neither of brute force nor of superior argument, but of something that goes much deeper into every area of human life. The early Christians called it the power of agape, love. And our English word is really insufficient for what agape means. It's every conceivable kind of love. The love of a wife, the love of a husband, the love of a friend, the love of a child, the love of a dog, as C.S. Lewis points out, all wrapped up in one. The clash between Jesus and the powers of the world, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humans, was never about God simply having a bit more power than the humans so that he could manage to beat them at their own game. It isn't that God has stronger tanks and bombs than everybody else. right? If God were to make an A-bomb, could you imagine the size of it? Right? And there goes the left half of the galaxy. Now, they weren't expecting tanks and bombs. They wouldn't have known what those were. But this is what the people were expecting in Jesus' day. A bigger chariot. Better armor. A sword that never gets dull. It is also what people expect and often want today, though, isn't it? Why doesn't God just come down here and do something about these despots? Why does he keep letting Democrats get elected? <laughs> Right? I mean, what has he got to do to get the Seahawks into the Super Bowl? These are the things that we're concerned with. Where is this God, this good God? 
Why doesn't he just come down from heaven and just snap his fingers and take care of our problems? His kingdom comes, and it's not exactly like he goes around and it's easy for him. What kind of kingdom is this? This is why the good news is so often misunderstood. This is why it continues to puzzle and challenge the people of God, as it always has. It's also why people step back from the big claims in the Bible, the world-shattering, world-dominating claims of the Bible, and turn the radical good news of Jesus Christ into something they find more believable. Something about me and my relationship to God, as if he's your girlfriend or something, or about going to heaven. This is what people think the gospel is. It's either personal salvation, their story, or, yay, in the end, I get out of this horrible place and I get to go somewhere better. That's more believable, right? There's got to be a better place than this place. So the whole idea about going to heaven seems easy. And, And... the actual proclamation that Jesus is the king of everyone, NATO and the European Union and even Trump. I mean, there's even room in the White House for Jesus given Trump's ego. There's enough space, right? He's the king of all of it. That message gets truncated down to, oh, gee, I get to go to heaven when I'm done here. And so what do we do? Are we out there proclaiming the good news in word and deed? No, because we got our get-out-of-jail-free card. Sweet. I'm not going where it's hot. It's fine. I don't like hot weather anyway. Heaven, I'm sure there's lots of you know, rain and snow. But this is what we exchange it. We exchange earth-shattering news for some news that's good for me, because that's all I really care about. We know what the power of the world looks like. When, when push comes to shove, as it often does, even in our own homes, it is the power of violence. It is the power of using the threat of pain and death. It is, yes, even the power of tanks and bombs, hopefully not in your home, also of guns and knives and whips and prisons and barbed wire and bulldozers and sharp words, weapons to destroy people's lives, people's hope, people's dreams, people's self-reliance, machines to destroy homes, cruelty in the home or at work, malice and manipulation where there should be gentleness and kindness and wisdom. Jesus' power is of a totally different sort. As he explained to the Roman governor a few minutes before the governor sent him to his own death, thereby proving his point. There's two kings. This, I'm the son of God. They have declared me to be so. I serve him, and if I wanted to, I would call legions down. But I'm not going to because that's not my kind of kingdom, Jesus says to Pilate. And Pilate says, well, that's my kind of kingdom, and so come and get this guy now and go nail him to some wood. Right? He doesn't even do it himself. He's got soldiers to do that for him. That's the power of the world and the power of God. Two different kingdoms right there. Now, if this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the the way of love and self-sacrifice and joy and goodness and obedience to the Father, if that's come, that is good news. And it has to do with a lot more than just you. We overemphasize this part of it. It is a message that does mean individual salvation, but that's not the message itself. The true and living God who is all grace and mercy is now in charge. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And because Jesus has come and he is the king, his kingdom has come. Without him, there is no kingdom of heaven entering this world, and we remain under Satan in utter darkness. 
And without um, him, and without that good news, there was no hope, there was no life, there was no grace. Okay, I like John Piper asked this question. If you could have all the benefits of heaven, all the goodness of heaven, the lack of disease, the never having to get tired, if you could have the, the glorious throne room, palace, golden mansion that you think you get to live in, if you could have everything that heaven offers and have it without Jesus, would you still want it? Most of us would say yes, of course, because that's the good news, isn't it, that I get to go the, to that place? The good news is that Jesus is king. And he is all love. He is all mercy. He is all goodness. And we get to serve him. We get to be associated with that, even though we do not deserve it. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth through the ministry of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven has invaded earth, and the conquest is complete and total. And this is good news. But this news is news. It's news. It's not a suggestion. It's not a plea. It's not a request. It's not an op-ed. It's not propaganda. It's not the advice column, and it's not found in the funny pages. This is news. It's front page news. N.T. Wright states this. This is what Israel was waiting for. It wasn't a new piece of good advice. It wasn't a new political agenda. It wasn't a new type of spirituality. It might eventually lead to advice and agenda and certainly to prayer, but it was itself something more than all of these. It was the good and extremely dangerous news that the living God was on the move, was indeed now coming into his kingdom, and it demanded definite response. It was God's good news. Jesus is not giving advice or issuing an invitation to anyone. He is not asking you to come into, to, to enter into your heart. He has entered into the world. And he says, obey, believe, or not. He is proclaiming a new reality, a new order, a new regime, and he is either to be believed or not, obeyed or not. One can debate the merits of a religion, a moral system, or a philosophy, but a news event is discussed in a very different way, isn't it? Either the event happened or it didn't. Either it means what the pro those who are proclaiming the news it either means what they say it means or it doesn't. It's not like debating, you know, a philosophical theory. Jesus' ministry is a ministry of words and deeds. He declares the glad tidings that the long-awaited ladder to heaven has arrived, and he says, climb it or die. How? How do you climb it? Follow me. Follow me, and I'll show you how to climb it. Jesus is declaring himself to be the Son of God, Kiss him or perish. It's not advice. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, for he is the long-awaited ark in which those who hide themselves are saved from the wrath of God and utter destruction. Mark's gospel proclaims an alternative kingdom, the kingdom of God. It speaks of Jesus in terms associated with the Caesars, and by doing so proposes an alternative view of reality which offers an alternative set of hopes for the future. Mark's gospel was subversive because Jesus' gospel was subversive. Is the gospel we preach good news? Is it subversive? A joyous proclamation of fact and word and deed. The original gospel messages of the Greeks 
was subversive, or I'm sorry, the original gospel message, the Christian gospel message, the original Christian gospel message was subversive in all that it... I'm getting a little too worked up to even read this. (laughs) The original gospel message was subversive in that it undermined the claims of the imperial cult, which proclaimed that the emperor is the source of life of the world. It undermined all of that. Have your emperor. We have an emperor. And he's not just the emperor of Rome. He's not just going to make America great again. He's going to make the whole world great again. Just like the modern state. We have a modern secular gospel that the state is the source of life. Right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is what they're guaranteeing equitably to everyone. What is our message? Right? Oftentimes it's, yeah, you can have life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and we also don't swear much. I mean, really, what's the difference between, right? Most of us, including myself, I go home to my family, I eat my food, I go to Costco, I live my life. How is it really that different? I know I'm getting out of here when I'm done, so sweet. Right? Let's go to Costco and buy some spare ribs. Rome had extended the shadow of death across many nations. Jesus came into that empire and proclaimed that the true source of life, identity, goodness, fullness, joy, and hope for the world is Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, when he comes and he does, he brings life to those who find themselves living under the shadow of death. And I know that every one of you, in your way, are living under the shadow of death. And there is light, and there is hope, and there is life, and his name is Jesus, and it's his kingdom. This is good news, isn't it? The news that Jesus is king is good because he is good. Now, is God good? You might be sitting there wondering, is he? Is he really as good as what you're saying? Believe it. Is God powerful enough to overcome the world? Is, is he really that powerful? Did he really do that? I have news for you. And it's not advice about how to live your life. It's news. Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, has entered into this world, and he has thrown down the strong man, and he has plundered it. And the treasure that he's plundered is all of you. And everyone sitting in every pew worshiping him this morning. You are the treasure of heaven that he sought. He came and he plundered Satan, and you are the treasure that he won. Take up the Gospels, all four of them, all four of them, not just John, (laughs) and read them, and then read them again, and then sing the doxology and read them again, and then repent accordingly. (laughs) The Gospel is to be believed and it is to be obeyed. And it is the good news that God's kingdom has come because God has come into the world through Jesus Christ. And he is with us. He is with us now. He is with us always to the end of the age. And that is very good news. And it's not just news for you. It's news for the world. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he indeed did not remain in heaven, but he came in the likeness of men as a servant to obey you unto death, to demonstrate that he is the Messiah, to demonstrate that all the promises regarding him to us are true, that they find their amen in him. And we pray, Father God, that with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, that we would cling to Jesus Christ and that we would believe him and that we would obey him. And amen.